0: Hey, welcome here. Good to see you. You glad to be here? Uh, Yeah, those of you at the other campuses, are you glad to be here? Can we hear you? Okay, yeah, we heard you. That's awesome. So anyway, grab your Bibles. Uh, We are finishing out. the last two weekends left in Philippians, so you should know this by now if you've been listening in or if you've been at services up till now. We're finishing out uh, 12 weeks Uh, In Philippians, so we are in week 11, and then one more, and so we're going to dive into a really very, very basic and practical lesson from today's text. Just two verses, but it is a very simple uh, lesson, and we're going to talk about the oldest battle on earth. So uh, you may or may not have heard this story before, but back in 1804, a guy named Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the United States, uh, took out a, a Bible and a penknife, apparently two Bibles and a penknife, and he cut out of the Bible everything that he agreed with and posted it into a notebook. And then he had that notebook bound, and he said to many of his friends, it was actually quite a simple exercise because what was worthy was very quickly distinguishable from what was unworthy. In fact, he wrote a letter to John Adams, who was the second president of the United States, to say it was, it was as simple as lifting diamonds out of a dunghill. Now, that journal was never published, and it eventually was lost. But 16 years later, in 1820, at the age of 77, he redid that exercise. And this time, he took six Bibles and a penknife, and he cut out of the Scripture everything that he agreed with, and he put it into a notebook. And he bound that notebook, and he actually published that notebook. And if you ever get a chance to go to the Smithsonian Institute, you might see it. But one of his biographers said this. It was about the words of Jesus, but he left out the miracles And any suggestion that Jesus is God, the virgin birth is gone, so is Jesus walking on water, multiplying the loaves and fish, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Jefferson's version ends with Jesus' burial on Good Friday. There is no resurrection, there is no Easter Sunday. So if you go to Washington, D.C., if you get a chance to do that, and you go to the Smithsonian, you can actually see the original of that, and actually, it's still in print. Uh, It's called the Jefferson Bible. You can go to Amazon, you can go to chapters online, you can order this book even yet today. Some would say, well, he obviously wasn't a Christian. Well, the interesting thing is Jefferson claimed to be a Christian, but with this proviso. He was born and raised an Anglican, lifelong Anglican or Episcopalian, as they say in the States. But he preferred, he said, to make his own judgment when it came to religious matters. So it reminded me of a conversation I had last summer uh, out there in the foyer, a gentleman who was visiting our church, and he took me aside and it was a conversation that I got used to in the last two years of wanting to tell me everything that we had done wrong as a local church, which was interesting for a visitor to be having that conversation. But specifically how we had responded to COVID-19 specifically that we had shut our church down, specifically that we had asked people to wear masks, specifically that we had limited the number of people. So I was interested because I've had dozens of these conversations, didn't know him, so I wondered, well, where are you coming from? So I asked him, so how do you then interpret Romans 13? Well, what does Romans 13 have to say? Well, Romans 13 says we should submit to the governing authorities because there is no government that God has not appointed over us. How do you understand that text? I don't believe that text. Now, that was an interesting response. So I pushed him a little further and I said, What do you mean you don't believe that text? And he says, It doesn't resonate with my spirit. So now I was lit up. (laughs) Forget about COVID 19, forget about government, forget about everything else. Now I wanted to know his approach to scripture. So I said, So what other scriptures? don't resonate with your spirit. And are you now the authority over the book or is the book the authority over you? It was a pretty short conversation. (laughs) And so I have a simple message, a very simple message for you this weekend, and it is this, that this book has the power to change your life if you will let it. If you will let it. And we're anchoring the conversation in Philippians chapter 4, but it's actually a much broader topical discussion, and it'll take us about 15 minutes to get to the text. So I want to start with some questions. So I don't want you to answer this out loud. I would like you to just answer it in the privacy of your own mind between you and God. Do you love the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe the Bible has the authority to tell us how to live our lives? Do you read the Bible? How often do you read the Bible? Now, I would like to assume that I know how all of you, the majority of you at least, would have answered those questions, but I have learned over the years that you should never assume Sometimes I'm way too negative in my assumptions, and often I'm actually way too positive in my assumptions. And so eight or nine years ago, the Canadian Bible Forum commissioned a survey among Canadians to see what the average Canadian, including Christians, thought about the Bible, and particularly what was their level of engagement with the Bible. It was called the Canadian Bible Engagement Survey. You can Google it, and you can read the whole thing. They ask three primary questions. What level of confidence do you have in the truthfulness of the Bible? Secondly, how often do you engage in conversation with other people about what you're reading in the scriptures? And finally, how does the Bible influence your engagement with your church community? So those three areas. And their findings actually were quite discouraging, frankly. Because basically, if you rolled this 30-page report down into two statements, it would be this, that while most Canadians own Bibles, most don't actually read them very much. And secondly, they have serious doubts and concerns about the authority of the Bible. So let me just throw up five statements. Again, it's a 30-page report, so, but just five ones that are, should illustrate for us. Only 18% of Canadians strongly agree that the Bible is the Word of God. The majority of Canadians and half of Christians agree that the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions. Only one in seven Canadians and about one in four Christians strongly agree that the Bible is relevant to modern life. Almost two-thirds of Canadians and six in ten Christians agree that the scriptures of all major world religions teach essentially the same thing. And finally, this is the most shocking, only 14% of Canadian Christians read the Bible at least once a week. Now it is not a shock, it should not be a shock to us that our culture at large does not hold this book to be authoritative. That shouldn't shock us at all. But if these surveys are even remotely accurate, then only about 30% of people who call themselves Christians in most churches actually believe the Bible is authoritative. So I need to ask you again, do you believe the Bible? And as we jump back into our text, Philippians 4, I'm going to pick up the theme that we ended with last week because it's uh, our necessity to be deeply rooted in the Word of God. So if you remember or if you missed last weekend, we were talking about rejoicing in the Lord. Just go back a few verses before, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. And we were looking at that command, and what I said that that command gives us is a massive assumption undergirding it. Paul's command, rejoice in the Lord, assumes that his readers had enough knowledge about who God was and what he is doing and what he is on about that they could actually rejoice in him. In other words, it assumes that they have their roots down deep enough into the word of God, the community of God, and the history of God that they actually have something that they can rejoice in. And so to follow that trail just a little bit further, as part of being an evangelical, I'm sure you've heard that word we carry a strong commitment to the word of God. Now, the word evangelical is an interesting word and in our day maybe a problematic word, but it simply means to be people of the evangel. And the word evangel is actually the Greek word. It's not translated, it's transliterated. If it was translated, it would be the gospel or good news people, but it's people of the evangel. But unfortunately, it's been co-opted in our generation to be predominantly a right-wing political movement. And so increasingly, numbers of Christians are distancing themselves from that term evangelical, not because it's not a good term, but because of the political overtones. But fundamentally, the word evangelical has nothing to do with political overtones. Uh, David Bevington, uh, Dr. Bevington, is a British historian and a scholar, and he defined the word evangelical with people who are committed to, now these are important words, uh, biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. Now uh, those are great words, aren't they? Uh, I take those words with you and, and at coffee break this week, see how many of those words you can pull into your conversation. But if you just want to understand them simply, I mean, the words are right there in them. Biblicism means that we are people who are committed to the Bible. Crucicentrism means the cross, the cruci, is central to our beliefs. That the atonement of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished at the cross, is central to our teaching. Uh, The fact that we believe in conversion, that we believe that you are not born a Christian... You might be born into a Christian family, you might be born into a church-going family, but every individual at some point along the journey of their life is walking away from the Lord and must turn, must repent, must be converted, and so we believe in that. And finally, we believe in activism, that we should get the message out through words and deeds. And so if you wanted to just draw it in a graphic, you could remember it easily this way by just putting a quadrant on the screen and, and, and putting up a Bible, And a cross, and a U turn signal, and a megaphone that would remind you of these four words. But we are fundamentally, as evangelicals, people of the book. And so, for 40 years as a local church, although different pastors have stood in this pulpit, every single one of those pastors has held a deep commitment to this book as authoritative. And as a local church, we today are committed to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through clear biblical teaching. We also happen to belong to a denomination that historically has held a very high view of the scriptures. So 30 years ago, when Carolyn and I, we were just 13 back then, came to BC (laughs) and first encountered this little family called the Mennonite Brethren. And we were attending a church out in Chilliwack, and Henry Schmidt, who some of you old-timers might remember, was uh, then president of our seminary, happened to be a guest speaker. Uh, He was sort of half uh, Einstein and half the crazy professor off of Back to the Future. His hair was crazy. He worked the whole stage, large gestures, and he yelled a lot. But he, he said this, which stuck with me as a young man, that Mennonite brethren have been known to be people of the book that the very first question they ask about any issue in life or any theological issue, any doctrinal issue, is what does the Bible have to say about that issue? So cultural blows, some winds our way, and we want to know what does the Bible have to say. And I'll tell you what, I was hooked in that one sermon. If this is what these people are on about, then I want to be part of these people. Now, a very interesting rabbit trail for you, that when a denomination begins to drift theologically, you can inevitably... Trace it directly to their view of the scriptures. So when a denomination rewrites its stance on marriage and sexuality, it is not first and foremost a statement about marriage and sexuality, it is first and foremost a statement about the authority of scripture. When a denomination rewrites its view of the atonement, specifically what Jesus Christ accomplished at the cross, specifically, that God's wrath against sin was fully satisfied in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. When that is rewritten, it is not about the atonement, it is about the authority of Scripture. So if you look at the Anglican Church, the United Church, the Presbyterian Church of Canada that have all drifted from orthodoxy, and you go back far enough in their history, you will see that it started with questions about this book. That's where it started. Theological drift always starts with the question, did God really say? So where am I headed with all of this? Well, we're picking up where we left off last week. And Paul's admonition in the next two verses, verses 8 and 9, are to go back to what you have learned and what you've been taught, what you've seen and what you've heard, that our minds would indeed be deeply rooted in the truth of who God is and what he's done. So, Philippians 4, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers... Now, in some ways, it is a very, very simple text, very straightforward. It simply talks about right thinking and right living. Think about these things and put them into practice. But in other ways, it is an incredibly profound text. Because what I believe the Apostle Paul is really saying to these people and to us is this, that the only way that your faith is going to survive is if you are anchored to a solid rock. And what he is pointing us to by implication is the oldest battle on earth, the battle for our mind. And so here's the question, and if you remember nothing else from this sermon, I pray that you'll remember this question, and it'll roll around in your brain for the next few days. Will this book form the foundation and the boundary for my life? If you remember nothing else, take this thought with you. Will this book form the foundation and the boundary for my life? And the reason I've taken all of this time to set up the conversation in this way is that until we recognize what is really going on in the spiritual realm around us, I don't actually believe that we're going to take this admonition too seriously. So some of you might be wondering, why do you call it the oldest battle on earth? Well, because from the very beginning of time, Satan's strategy in the mind of humanity is to call into question what God has said. And now, I don't know if you know this. I know some of you will, but maybe not all of you. What were the very first words that we hear spoken by Satan? His words are recorded in the scriptures. What are his very first words? Genesis 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Here are his very first four words Did God actually say? Conversation between Satan and Eve, and his strategy is to undermine her confidence in what God has said, to cause her to question or to doubt that God could be trusted. You see, there's an enemy of our souls who would do everything in his power to keep us from trusting our creator. And he is called by various names, some of them, the accuser, the deceiver, an angel of light, a liar. And we know a lot about his character from several other scriptures. So the the first place we actually encounter Satan before Eden is in the book of Revelation when there was a war in heaven. So before the conversation with Eve, this battle takes place in heaven, it says, uh, Revelation 12, and the great dragon is thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And then when Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees and and why they don't understand his teaching, he says this to them, why don't you understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. Now, here's a really seeker-sensitive message, Jesus. You're of your father, the devil. Like, you think that's how to build a great congregation, right? Right? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, so you know this, that we are living in very interesting days, right? Days of misinformation and fake news. 2016, the Oxford Dictionary chose as their word of the year the word post-truth. That was the word of the year. It says 2018. That's wrong. It's 2016. And it's defined this way. Post-truth is when objective facts are less important in shaping public opinion than emotional appeals. Is that not interesting? Like, who cares about the facts? How do I feel about it? Or as Oprah most famously said at the 2018 Golden Globes, and it went viral, she's giving her speech, she said, Truth in journalism is important, but what is even more important is that you speak your truth. It went viral. Notice that she didn't say that you give your opinion, or you give your perspective, or you share your experience. No, she said that you speak your truth. Truth. And so these two verses, two simple verses in front of us, call us to think rightly, because whoever or whatever it is that controls your mind controls your life. Lots is written on this. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said this: "Sow a thought and you reap an action." So an action and you reap a habit, sow a habit, and you reap a character, sow a character, and you reap a destiny." begins with your thoughts. Or as Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Or if you want, just right here in Philippians, if you remember back at the very beginning, how Paul started with a prayer, and he said to these people, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and then be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So I pray that you would abound more and more in your knowledge and in your understanding of God's word. So the key that undergirds our text today is this question, what source of authority will I trust? So Paul gives six whatever's and two anything's. Six whatevers and two anythings. And it really reads like a list of virtues that we are to pursue to fill our minds with these things. And actually, each word is worth pressing into and studying. And, and we could take a focus on each one, or we could just take them as a group. So first, whatever is true. So in other words, whatever is constant and trustworthy, upright, reliable, reliable, valid, all the words that go with truth. Secondly, whatever is honorable, simple. Whatever is worthy of your respect, it is honorable. Whatever is just, in other words, what is right or righteous, what is upright, what is proper, you all understand inherently, justice is written on your heart. Whatever is pure, think of the fresh snow in the winter, innocent, undefiled, holy is another translation, or sincere. Whatever is lovely, Pleasing, agreeable, beautiful. Whatever is commendable. In other words, something that has a good reputation. So you're you're all into this. So you're going to go to a, a new restaurant or you're planning a trip. And so you get on Yelp or you get on TripAdvisor and you want to read the reviews on the various places that you're thinking of visiting. And you're like, can somebody speak a word of commendation? of recommendation. If I'm going to spend $200 to go to a stinking expensive restaurant, I want to know somebody says it's worth it. Or if I'm going to take a trip somewhere, I want to read the reviews on that place. Give me a recommendation. And then to any that act like a blanket statement that summarize all of that has gone before, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, fill your minds with these things and think on these kind of things. So in some ways, it's a really simple text, especially when you consider the opposite. That's a good way of looking at the text because who wants to do the opposite? Who wants to spend all your time thinking about what is false, what is dishonorable, what is unjust, what is defiled, what is ugly, or what is of a shady reputation? Like, you don't want to spend your time on that. And so on the surface, it looks like uh, this is really simple. Okay, then, all I need to do is just fill my mind with happy thoughts, positive thinking, positive images, helpful counsel, helpful wisdom. And I think it's why the self-help section at every bookstore always has customers in that lineup. That particular line in the bookstore, there are always customers flipping through the self-help books, looking for good advice and happy thoughts. But as I said last week, Paul's simple admonition rejoice in the Lord, and now think rightly, is built on a critical assumption, and and here it is. It is built on the assumption that there is an agreed-upon standard of right and wrong. It's built on that assumption, the assumption that there is truth and honor and justice that there is purity and beauty and merit. It just assumes that those things exist. And so then the question is, well, where do the standards come from that define those very words? And as followers of Jesus, the answer is clear. Our authority comes from this book. And our definition for all those words comes from this book. Now, our passage is really a great echo to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 starts with general revelation that the heavens declare the glory of God, that creation shouts at us, there is a God. But then in the second part of it, it talks literally about the written word of God. And it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. If you, if you pull out the words, you will see almost a mirror reflection to Philippians 4, 8, and 9 perfect, sure, wise, right, pure, clean, true, righteous, sweet. Think of all those anythings in Philippians 4. And so the question of this very, very simple message is this. If this is true, then what are we doing to anchor ourselves to the word of God? So you might be wondering, why am I taking all of this time and why am I drilling into these questions? Why am I emphasizing something that is so very, very basic? And why am I repeating concepts that most church people have heard hundreds of times before? Why? And the simple why is this, because there is a war over your life and my life. We do indeed live in a post-truth culture. We are told there is no such thing as truth anymore. And yet, what you actually believe to be true is going to be lived out in your life. And so let me go back to those questions. Do you love the Bible? And do you read the Bible? What do you believe about the Bible? Is it, as that survey said, just another religious book, the same as all other religious books? Or are these words truly the inspired words of the living God? In other words, does this book have authority? And so Philippians 4.9, he goes on to say, Practice then what you've learned and received and heard and seen. What you've been taught, what you have learned and what you have studied. And so I want to challenge you with this thought. That if you were to change just one thing in your life that would radically alter the direction of your life, just one thing... It would be to introduce into your life a regular time of Bible reading. Now, there is a ton that we could talk about on that subject of how to read the Bible, how to understand it, where you even start when you go to this book with 66 books contained in it, and various methods and approaches to this massive topic. And if you need some help, we actually have an entire department called our discipleship team who would love to sit with you and give you some very basic tools on where do I even begin. But what I want to say this, the most important step that every single one of us, every man, woman, and boy and girl in this room could take without any counsel whatsoever is to simply sit down with a Bible in your hand on a regular basis and a simple prayer that you just said, Lord, speak to me. Lord, give me one truth today from your word that I can take with me and that I can ponder and I can meditate and I can reflect on it through the day and I can chew it over and I can obey it. Do that today. Do it again tomorrow And do it every day following, day in and day out. And if you did nothing else than that, I can absolutely guarantee you that the Holy Spirit will change your life. If you did nothing else but that. So in 1820, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, sat down with a Bible and a knife. And he cut out everything he agreed with and put it in a notebook. And there's a lot of people today that are doing the very same thing with their Bibles. Maybe not literally cutting it apart, but they are ignoring the portions of the Bible that they don't agree with. And so, friends, I've got to tell you something very simple and yet very, very important. Is that in the history of Northview Church for 41 years so far, by God's grace, this book has been the foundation for what we believe and what we teach. And the times are changing and our culture may be shifting. And there are issues and challenges that we face today, 41 years after the founding of this church, that were not real 41 years ago in Canadian culture. But what has not changed is this, that we remain a church that is committed to faithfully proclaiming Jesus Christ through clear biblical teaching. So I'll tell you this, I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you that there are other churches where you will be better entertained. I can guarantee you that there are other churches where you will find a more comfortable message. I can guarantee you that there are other churches that will not press this book into your life. But as your pastor... I can offer you no other confidence than the rock-solid truth revealed to us in God's Word. And there is so much more that we could say about this topic, but time is out, and let me leave you with four words about the Bible that are important. The Bible is authoritative, the Bible is clear, the Bible is necessary, and the Bible is sufficient. Let me just make a comment on each one of those. We could literally spend an hour unpacking each one of those words, but what we believe is that our Bible is actually our final authority. It's actually what we believe. We may not always find it easy to understand. There may be some doctrines that we have to wrestle with, but ultimately, if the culture says, go this way, and the Bible says, go this way, this is our authority. We live by it. Secondly, the Bible is clear, and I need to just say this for your comfort. You do not need a PhD to understand the scriptures. If you can read at about a grade five reading level, you can pick up any good English translation of the scripture and you will be able to understand 95% of this book. There are some passages that are challenging. There are some sections that are dense and they're hard to get through. But the majority of this book is absolutely clear. You do not need an advanced degree in theology to pick up a Bible and understand this book. It is clear. Number three, it is necessary. Romans 10 says, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody. But then it asks a series of questions, and it says, but how can they call on one they've never heard about? And how can they hear unless somebody preached to them? And it's a missionary text. And how will they preach unless we send them to preach? And then it summarizes that statement by saying this, because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Christ. You see, the only way people come to faith in Jesus is they hear the gospel preached to them. It's why we support Bible translation to get this book into all the languages on the planet that do not yet have the Bible in their language. It's why we train and raise up missionaries. It's why we continue to pray, God, would you raise up young couples who want to go all around the world with the gospel of Jesus? Would you raise up couples who want to go plant churches in communities where there are not good Bible teaching churches because the Bible is necessary? And finally, word number four, it is sufficient. It is sufficient. Everything that we need for life and doctrine is here in this book. Now, I'll just make a comment there. Authoritative on one end is where the mainline uh, denominations have gone, and they say, no, it's no longer authoritative. We've thrown that out. Is it sufficient is where the wacko charismatics on the other end have gone. Where they will say, no, you need more than the word. You need a prophetic word. You need a new revelation. And we say, no, 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 we don't. This canon is closed. Everything we need to know is right here in this book. We just need to get our roots down deep into it. The word of God is authoritative. It is clear. It is necessary. And it is sufficient. So in summary, this book forms the boundary for our lives. So here's my questions and my challenge. Because if you're up for the challenge, I think the coming years are going to be a great ride for us. Because despite what is happening in our culture, our culture is still hungry for voices that will stand up and say, no, 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 there still is truth, with a capital T. And it can be known, and he can be known. So let me encourage you that what you have learned and received and heard and seen, put it into practice, and the God of peace We'll set a guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Stand with me, I want to pray for you. The team will come and lead us. So Lord Jesus, I pray for the men and women that are listening to this message. And you know, Lord, the challenges of our culture And you know, Lord, the battles that they're up against in daily life. And you know, Lord, the onslaught. We are discipled by our culture 24-7. From every television advertisement to internet conversations to what's coming out of the media and our politicians and on and on it goes, the winds of culture are pressing up against us, challenging the authority of your word Challenging the authority of who you are. And yet, Father, we want to be your children who are faithfully students of this book. That you would anchor us. And Father, we take some comfort from knowing it's not new for our generation. That as old as humanity is, it started in the garden with Adam and Eve with that question, did God really say? So it has been the battle of our lifetimes It has been the greatest battle in human history, and it remains our battle today. And so I pray for these men and women, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, that you would seal in their hearts a solid belief that this book can be trusted, that you, the author of this book, can be trusted. And Lord, if they do nothing else, that they would think about that question, will this book be the authority and the boundary for my life? And that they would make it their ambition to daily open this book and say, Holy Spirit, Give me one thought for today. Let me chew on it. Let me obey it. And Lord, we look forward to seeing the transformation that will happen. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you're patient with us. We ask all these things for your glory. And we know in that response to that, we have incredible joy. Amen.